The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this Friday morning. President Trump reportedly goes apoplectic at UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson over his decision to use Huawei in Britain's 5G rollout. As the US Attorney General urges buying stakes in Ericsson and Nokia to create viable competitors. CNBC learns billionaire investor Paul Singer's Elliott Management has taken a $2.5 billion stake in SoftBank as uh, Masayoshi San's uh, Vision Fund looks to recover from its WeWork misstep. Chinese stocks set for their worst week in nine months amid ongoing coronavirus fears, whilst the death of a doctor credited with raising the alarm triggers public mourning and anger. And Fiat Chrysler warning the outbreak could force the car giant to shut down a European plant if closures in China impact the supply chain. Uber shares drive higher in extended traders. The ride-hailing giant says it will try and turn profitable by the end of 2020, despite expecting to lose over $1 billion this year. Really glad you can all join us today for this Friday edition of Scorebox. There is so much going on, so let's just get straight into the key stories. The President of the United States, Mr. Trump, was, quote, apoplectic in a call with Boris Johnson after the UK Prime Minister's decision not to ban Huawei from developing 5G networks in Britain. This according to the Financial Times. Now, this despite strong pressure from Washington, D.C. to exclude the Chinese telco company. Uh, whilst official statements from the two countries were neutral in tone, several accounts are now saying Johnson's break from Trump's directive has caused serious strain in the so-called special relationship. Who believes there's a special relationship? I'll just leave that one hanging. Uh, and may even weigh on upcoming trade negotiations. Number 10 says, says such reports are overblown. Now, if we think that's a staggering conversation, I don't think it's that staggering. I think it's quite interesting. The next one is amazing, what you're about to read. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, U.S. Attorney General William Barr has argued the U.S. should seriously weigh ownership of a controlling stake in Ericsson and Nokia to bolster competition with Huawei. Mr. Barr noted that the European telecom network companies are at a disadvantage in the 5G race as they lack Huawei's scale and the backing of a powerful country with a large embedded market in China. He added that the U.S. would have to decide what, quote, horse we are going to ride in this right. race. Okay. So I the said, unprecedented I move is Sorry. likely to heighten tensions between the US and China. I, I, the reason I'm overexcited, mm. and I thought you'd finish your read, so I apologise. Um, we've got so much going on. We had enormous amounts of news flow. And now in the, literally the last five seconds, we've got even more amazing news flow. Mm. Tijan Tiam, 
says, I regret this happened and it should never have taken place. Talking about events, of course, surrounding surveillance uh, around uh, employees and former employees uh, at uh, Credit Suisse. I am proud of what the team has achieved during my tenure. We have turned Credit Suisse around. In particular, we have grown our leading wealth management franchise, re-energized our, op- our proposition. But it looks like Tijan Tian has resigned. It's incredible no. events, isn't it? Because uh, we've obviously heard uh, allegation after allegation about the surveillance from Iqbal Khan first up, then to uh, the, the HR division to Peter Gorke, and then uh, surveillance that he was of an outside company, Greenpeace, as well. So the surveillance seemed to be almost embedded into the culture of the company when you consider what was taking place behind the scenes. And then we've had these denials from, uh, from the C-suite. We so have a replacement, uh, Thomas Gottstein. Let me just have a look at that again. Thomas Gottstein, uh, apparently excellently positioned to lead Credit Suisse in the future. Um, Andre Helfenstein will succeed Thomas Gottstein as the CEO of Credit Suisse Switzerland as well. Incredible events in the sense that there were calls for the chairman to actually be removed, that he was the one that many shareholders had their sights on because you saw some rallying of support from the investors around Tijan Tian because he'd been such a a decent operator in his life in the C-suite. They wanted him to remain. But it seems as though he's the one that's fallen on the sword, not the chairman at this point. Well, fallen on sword implies that you resign rather than being sacked. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to ask the question. So for all of those people, James and you team at Credit Suisse who are watching all the channels now, calm down already. We're asking the question, was he uh, sacked or has he resigned? If it was either of those, the question next from journalists is why? And of course, he has throughout this case uh, said he has not been culpable and that it is not being him who is to blame for these surveillance issues as well. This would imply otherwise, and of course the details will come out. You spent a lot of time in Switzerland. Um, well, so I was at the meeting where the chairman of the board um, held a press conference, which Tijan Tian did not attend, where Credit Suisse sought to persuade investors, shareholders and the broader audience that Tijan Tian had not been party to or known about the decisions taken to spy on Iqbal Khan. Iqbal Khan, of course, left Credit Suisse to join UBS to head up the wealth management business. But Iqbal Khan touches a number of other banks because I was at Julius Baer earlier in the week and there was speculation that Iqbal Khan may actually head up Julius Baer. But ultimately, Iqbal Khan, as we know, left Credit Suisse, crossed the street, went to UBS, There was that press event where Ursarona was there, sat down, telling everybody who was willing to listen that they had done an independent legal investigation. The lawyers had come in, they'd looked through the email chains, although there were a whole swathe of emails that were not looked at because they were unavailable to to look at. Apparently they they disappeared, which left left a question mark as to exactly what they contained. But there was no evidence, and Credit Suisse were keen to reiterate that over and over again, and uh, subsequently Jumana did that interview with Tijan Tian, where he again reiterated that he was not connected in any way to the investigation. And there were a lot of people in that room who asked the question, is it credible to believe that the man who was responsible for running the bank did not know 
that these things were taking place. But, you know, we, we take the denials at face value. The question is now, with this subsequent Greenpeace story, it does raise, as you point out, some very interesting questions about the underlying culture. Now, yes. we, we've interviewed Tijan Tian for years in his, his various incarnations, and he's, he's yeah. still a relatively young man. And I guess if he leaves this business now, there is still the potential, if he walks out the door at this stage that there are other positions available to him what? at some point what? in the we near get, future. We just get some more of the flashes and then yeah. carry on the conversation because there are a few more flashes. I should probably just clarify the exact details. So uh, the board accepted his resignation unanimously, but again, was he pushed or did he go by his own accord as well? The board of directors say he will now, uh, they will take his resignation as of next Friday. This is the February the 14th when he's um, presented, I believe, the fourth quarter and uh, 2019 results. This is an interesting comment about what you were saying about the chairmanship as well. Uh, Credit Suisse lead independent director, Mr. Schwann. Um, is that Severin Schwann? I don't yeah, know. It's it is Severin Schwann. Yeah. Okay, so that's Severin Schwann, who we know chairman, is uh, one of the grandees of Swiss business. Yeah. Says the board has been unanimous in re affirming its full support for Mr. Rona, who you just mentioned as the chairman as well, yeah. until his term is complete in April 2021. So there's the extra facts you might want to. Which is also not much time left if you talk about tenure in uh, the C-suite uh, and at the helm of the company. I just wanted to point out that typically you have these events playing out and we're looking at uh, the surveillance and the, the corporate governance that's occurred at Credit Suisse. But in context, would we see such a, a change at the helm, such a turn of events, if we didn't have a challenging environment too for Swiss banking? And, you know, Jeff, you've just been at Julius mm. Baer. We've seen, what, three different leaders in the over the course of a very short window of time telling you just how challenging it is to try and uh, turn around some of these uh, businesses. And, mm. uh, Steve, I think you've been questioning the USP of these businesses. Uh, the secrecy used to be one of those factors. That's all changed. So you've got very challenging times uh, operationally, performance-wise, for these businesses, let alone a scandal on the sidelines of what is meant to be a sleepy, Sorry. very civilized part of the business community yeah. in Switzerland. Let's, uh, let, let, uh, let's give uh, Tijan uh, the benefit of the doubt on the transition phase, because I think there was a lot of scepticism when he first came in about what he could achieve. And the, and the backdrop to it was give us simpler banking, give us quieter banking, give us less dangerous banking. And his goal has been to reduce the reliance on risk-weighted assets and push the business into wealth sure. management and more secure and repetitive but, areas of revenue generation. But, uh, and again, I have a lot of sympathy for the European bankers who say their business model has been destroyed by negative interest rates across Europe and, of course, the SMB uh, mirroring that very low rate environment. So there is a lot of macro ex-company issues which have been forced upon these companies. I get that. That is where my sympathy ends because it's about self-help thereafter as well. And... Um, Mr. Tiam uh, joined the company on the 10th of March 2015 as the CEO, yeah? 10th of March 2015. So I have a chart here from the 11th of March 2015, his first full day in the office, and where uh, Credit Suisse were trading at 23.699 Swissy. 23.699 Swissy. Roughly divide that by two and add a, uh, a Swissy or two, and you get the current share price, 12.78. Uh, yeah, but that's that's not a surprise, is it? No, it's not I a mean, surprise. And hence is... my point about the macro. And yeah. hence, you're absolutely right. Tijan Tian. Okay, we don't come here to bury Tijan Tian. We come here to say what's the facts. And I yes. think that's very important because I know what Credit Suisse's 
press machine is like. They get very upset when we yeah. say things that are negative. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I'm just here for the fact. And the fact is, the share price is a tad above half the level of when he came in in 2015. So let's, let, let's just float an idea here. Um, this is a week before the announcement of fourth quarter earnings and full year 2019 earnings. And we all trooped out to Zurich to cover the quarterly earnings. Yes, and the second quarter were better. The third quarter were better. The fourth quarter, we haven't seen the numbers yet. <clears throat> One asks the question, why are we learning a week before the release of the fourth quarter earnings on the 13th of February? Why are we learning that the head of the bank is now moving well, on. One of Should we reasons. be concerned about what yeah. that presage is in terms of what those numbers look like? There could like? be one of two negative reasons. One, there is more outcomes to come about the surveillance issues. Or two, as you may be implying, but you're not actually saying, the numbers could be horrible. The questions have been mounting in the press, though, about leadership change. And I'm just going to point out that you had the third largest shareholder in Credit Suisse, Harris Associates, coming out saying they're 100% behind Tijan Tiam. And that was about four days ago. So they very much uh, put their money behind one particular candidate and that was the CEO not the chairman yeah. so this decision you've got to say there's probably a lot playing on behind the scenes in the boardroom about who is actually going to survive at this point and TJMTN obviously deciding that he wants to take himself out of the game or he may have been pressured we don't know that as well so questions about that well, our, our friends over at Credit Suisse, no doubt, um, they'll already be working on their media strategy at this point. So please, um, if somebody would love to pick up the phone and give us a ring, we'll take a conversation as soon as you are or ready to do it. we can put Jeff on a plane to Zurich. We could do that. How many times have you been in Zurich last three weeks? Uh, it, it feels like quite a few times. I think it's about three or four. Yeah, it does feel like a few times. Yeah, well, you love it. Um, yeah. you, know, you know, there are very few places Zurich. where CBC scorebox anchors are rock stars, but I can assure you, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff in the financial district of Zurich is pretty much as close as we get to Axel Rose. Yes, or even some of the <laughs> shops in Zurich Airport, Steve. I, I'm told that there are some very... Um, <laughs> Very excitable people there. Uh, OK, let's um, just put a, a line under this uh, story for the moment, but we will come back to it in inevitably. And it is a, a huge development uh, for Swiss banking and, of course, for Credit Suisse. And as I say, if anybody from the press office at Credit Suisse wants to pick up the phone and talk to us, we're all ears. They want a proper interview, that We're is, all ears. Rather than one of those softer ones. Um, Arjun is with us around the desk this morning. So Credit Suisse, Arjun. Uh, let's get... No. Um, Arjun is here, <laughs> our tech reporter, to talk about Huawei developments. Yeah. Although you did recently talk to uh, Mr. Tijan Tia, yeah, didn't no, you? I was going to add one point to that. Go on. And that was the point. When I did speak to him, I think it was early November over in China, you got the sense that they had sort of drawn a line under this whole issue and they, they thought they were past it. And it's interesting now that, you know, a, a month or a month and a bit on, we've still got this issue uh, popping up. And so clearly something's going on in the background. And I think, you know, what's going on there is going to come out and we're going to understand what's going on in the background because that's really the big question here. Why Green, now? Greenpeace was fuel on the fire, wasn't it, the other week? Mm. But I think there are similarities in some ways between, you know, you've just seen a statement from Credit Suisse trying to, to manage the message and we were bringing you on to talk about Huawei mm. and we saw uh, just several days ago this managing of the message in the UK about the American relationship with the yeah. UK, that things were fine, things were rosy despite the UK deciding Huawei could participate in up to 35% of traffic on the 5G network. I mean, well, why was it such a big issue to begin with? It 
if it's all okay that the decision's been made and there's been no pushback from the Americans, it seems like that was not the case, right? There was pushback. There was pushback. And, and the Americans for a long time have been saying to the UK over the past few months, look, if you go with Huawei, you know, our relationship is at stake. They even threatened to cut off intelligence sharing between the UK and the US, which would have been a very drastic measure, I think, and something that wasn't really realistic. But it was certainly a threat the US was dangling out there. And I think what we've seen now is, is the US come to, to realize that Huawei uh, or countries like the UK and we're seeing other parts of Europe as well are stuck in a very difficult position. One, they have to balance that political relationship with the US that they've had for a very long time. But on the other hand, they have to see uh, their relationship with China as well, particularly from a trade front. We know China is a very key partner for the UK. And the Germany example is interesting because you had uh, one of the uh, Chinese ambassadors uh, to Germany say, well, if you ban Huawei, you know, we're going to slap tariffs on your auto companies. And that would have been a huge deal. And I think the UK looked at that and said, well, there could be threats to our exports to China as well, particularly as we're leaving the EU and we need to negotiate trade deals. So a couple of points uh, I was hearing, you know, why is it such an issue? having Huawei mm. as part of the network and the Americans firmly feel as though there's a security issue. But if you yep. think about it from the other side, from the UK perspective, even if it is a security issue, if you take all of the Huawei equipment out of the network, then it could set you back two years on 5G deployment plus uh, push-up costs, which means how competitive are you in the future of 5G? The other key point is we talk about whether there should be American stakes in a, a Nokia or an Ericsson. Kind of like, where does that come from? Is that some arrogance from the Americans that they can do it better? It's one of these things they just chuck right. out. No, but, but this is the background. So I had a couple of conversations when we were in Davos about who, you know, why there hasn't been a play for a Nokia or an Ericsson. And the feeling is that tech companies, other tech companies have much, much higher returns. So to buy an Ericsson or a Nokia would sort of lower those returns and margins are much lower than what they used to. So there's no ready buy necessarily, even though they're so pivotal at this point around the future of 5G. And they're very expensive companies to run. These are massive infrastructure plays. And you'd argue also what company would have the expertise to bring in a Nokia or an Ericsson into the fold? Because the reason there hasn't been a US competitor is because they can't just create a startup tomorrow, pump a load of money into it and create a brand new player that can compete in 5G. It's already too late. For that, the 5G infrastructure is being built out. There's no space for any new players more than there are already the likes of Huawei, um, Nokia and Ericsson. And obviously some of the smaller players, you've seen Samsung and ZTE jump into the fold as well. But actually, that's the big problem here. And the, re the reason the US hasn't been able to create a, a 5G competitor is it hasn't, it takes years to do. It's not something that can even be done in five years. This could take sort of a decade or more to do. And so that's why perhaps this suggestion has been floated to take a, a very drastic action. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Very basic Nokia question and then. And you two are the experts on this. Do, do Ericsson and Nokia fly off the shelves today then because of this? this this carrot that's been floated out there about US ownership. I, I, think I mean, it just sounds preposterous, but... Too many questions. It? Just still too many questions for it to be realistic. I mean, first of all, this is going to be a massively political issue. And I was going to say, does Finland the EU... have an issue? Finland doesn't have a, a controlling stake in Nokia, I don't believe, but it's still part of the DNA of the country. Yeah, and this well, could potentially go to a sort of EU-level negotiations. These are pretty critical companies to Europe. These are sort of the European technology champions. Oh, what are, do, I, do I hear Margrethe Vestager <laughs> turning up in exactly. her tank and saying, back off? Do there I? we go. Yeah, and, and there's certainly a potential for that. These are huge European technology champions. Europe's oh, very, uh, you know, been trying to boost uh, their technology scene here. You know, they haven't been able to produce the size of companies we've seen over in the US. And, and certainly they'd want to protect some of these companies. We've already seen some of them leave. The likes of Arm out of the UK went to SoftBank. And so I think Europe would be very keen to protect 
these key players, which are going to be critical to the future infrastructure, which we're sort of calling 5G and which are going to underpin many uh, what future systems. What are these pictures systems? we're showing, by the way? If you look oh, at they're the, Nokia, uh, apparently. Okay. If you look at the share register of Ericsson, which is seen as the best executor at this point around 5G, mm. very typical share register structure. You've got like seven capital activist investors, the number one shareholder in this company. And then as you run down the list, Vanguard, <laughs> Investor, AB, so very usual structure. So you have to get an American government ownership to muscle in there. You ask the point, are these share prices going to you know, rally on the back of the news? When have you seen companies rally on the back of government ownerships? When, uh, is, it, when I, is it typically seen as positive? I, mean, I, I think you've raised some terrific points here. And the first one is that um, at this point, it seems to me there's still a massive question mark over profitability around 5G and who actually makes money from 5G. Is it the people that build the infrastructure? Is it the people that utilise and sell on the infrastructure like the phone operating companies? Or is it somebody else? And I still don't think we have an answer for that at this point. And the other is, um, where the hell is the US in terms of its technology evolution around 5G infrastructure? In the bad old days, DARPA and other organizations that were related to the defense industry in the United States were pioneers in all these sections of technology. In the last 20 or 30 years or so, there's been underinvestment in those agencies and in that space. And it seems to me what we're seeing now with Huawei is just chickens coming home to roost. Absolutely. <laughs> they certainly are. Okay. Uh, just a reminder, we've been podcasting. If you can't get enough of Squawkbox, be sure to tune in for our podcast. Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, have a listen and download today's episode. Uh, and take a look at the opening calls for the European, or beg your pardon, uh, with the Asian markets down, nine tenths of one percent for the Hang Seng. Uh, the opening calls will uh, come to that. There they are. Down 15 points, FTSE 100. ZFAT's called down 29 points. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. U.S. hedge fund Elliott Management has built a $2.5 billion stake in SoftBank. A CBC source has confirmed that the investment is being led by billionaire investor Paul Singer's son, Gordon. According to multiple reports, the activist investor is pushing the technology giant to rebuy stock and make changes in the governance practices. SoftBank is the latest Japanese corporate to be targeted by the hedge fund, and at current prices, the investment would be the equivalent to about 3% to SoftBank's market cap. Uh, can I ask a very silly question? Hmm. SoftBank hmm. is stunningly cash-rich, yeah, and invests vast amounts of money in companies globally, and some work, many of them work very well, some don't, like we work as well. Why would they want investment from someone like Elliot? Is it necessary for them, or is just Elliot's just trying to park its tanks on the lawn, so to speak, and say, we want an influence on how you do things going forward? Well, where's the cash come from? It's come from investors, hasn't it? Putting their money in to this vehicle, into the company. So and then SoftBank well, has gone out and made a whole well, bunch of different investments. investing in the shares in. and investing in 
the companies that the company buys. They're not the same thing. But it takes both sides for the business to perform and to be a decent one. And what you've seen, I think, question marks around the performance after WeWork. So you've seen a challenge on that side of the business when it, you know, had failed to launch on the IPO. To do some form of collaboration with SoftBank, they could do what the uh, the Saudi Investment Authority have done and other people and just kind of join the um, the, 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 the the consortia. Uh, for various activities, for various investments, couldn't they? I don't think they want a collaboration. They want a change in the way the business is run. Ah, they want a change ah, in their decisions. So that gets to the point. That exactly my point. So there is a problem at SoftBank, is there? Apparently. Um, but, but let me t- take this from a different perspective. Um, was 2019 peak private equity? Because let, let's just let's step back and let's, let's explain what we're talking about here. We're talking about an activist investor that takes stakes in businesses, taking a stake in a business that takes take stakes, stakes in, in businesses. Which is exactly so my this point. is ultimate. This is ultimate dog eat dog Pac-Man. Basically, why oh doesn't God. Elliot, if it wants to own the stakes that this company owns in other companies, why doesn't it just buy them directly? Why is it buying SoftBank? And so I suppose the argument Thank is you, that. Well, the argument is that the current price of the shares doesn't reflect the underlying value of the assets that are owned, right? But there is the other issue that we know that SoftBank also bought WeWork, Uber and WAG Mm. and spent huge amounts of money. So is there sufficient value in ownership of this business to compensate for some of the howlers that they've invested in? But to me, this just sounds like real peak market stuff. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.